The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. Ascended into hell, Christ our living head will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe and trust in Him. I will trust in my Redeemer, sing of His love that lasts forever know His hope and sure salvation I will trust in Him Oh, the world falls around me I rest and know that He has found me Christ the rock is my Welcome all to Pastor Yeshua. You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album, Order of Service. By way of introduction, Pastor is an acrostic which stands for Preaching All Salvation Through One Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Iesus, The English transliteration for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome again to Pastor Yeshua. As stated in an earlier episode discussing types and shadows, when we study all of Scripture, we tend to see that indeed God seems to create all things according to a pattern which testifies of Him. As we continue to look and study the visible and invisible things of creation, we are able to increasingly see God's reflection to some degree in that mirror. When these examples occur within Scripture, we characteristically refer to them as types or shadows. We shall also see that ultimately, as with all Scripture, that these types and shadows point to the substance, which is Jesus. In the previous eight episodes, we took an in-depth examination of the various types, shadows, and the substance which were revealed by God through the book of Exodus beginning with chapter 1 and continuing through chapter 16. In doing so, we saw how God used the historical saga of Israel's entrance, bondage, and eventual deliverance from Egypt by Moses 
parallels and in fact foreshadows its substance depicting all God's people who have entered into bondage of sin and are delivered from their sin through grace, by faith, in the finished work and imputed righteousness of Jesus. In the last episode, we had just concluded a comparison of the manna provided in the wilderness to its substance, Jesus. In this episode, we return to Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 7, which reads, quote, And all the congregation of the children of Israel journeyed from the wilderness of sin after their journeys according to the commandment of the Lord, and pitched in Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. Wherefore the people did chide with Moses, and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said unto them, Why chide ye with me? Wherefore do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water, and the people murmured against Moses, and said, Wherefore is this that thou hast brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our cattle with thirst? And Moses cried unto the Lord, saying, What shall I do unto this people? They be almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go on before the people, and take with thee of the elders of Israel, and thy rod, wherewith thou smotest the river, take in thy hand, and go. Behold, I will stand before thee there upon the rock in Horeb, and thou shalt smite the rock, and there shall come out water out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah, because of the chiding of the children of Israel, and because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us, or not? Unquote. At this point, we need to continue connecting the remaining typological dots. As you will recall, when we left off in verse 1, which according to the Targums was paraphrased as follows in verse 1, quote, And all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed from the desert of sin by their journeyings according to the word of the Lord, and they encamped in Rephidim, a place where their bands were idle in the commandments of the law, and the fountains were dry, and there was no water for the people to drink, unquote. Placing this verse into context with what has been discussed so far, the substance of our type is in fact an axiomatic reality. Namely, without the implementation of a new nature, God's Spirit via a relationship through grace by faith in Jesus who is our rock, we stand condemned by our innate unrighteousness, sin, and rebellion. Despite any imagined righteousness, goodness, works, or following of the commandments, we are and remain in a place where the fountains are dry and there is no water which will sustain life. Despite this truth, there are many today, just as there were in Moses' day, who are content to be encamped at Rephidim, where they too rest, as the name implies, in the vain self-assurance that based on their good deeds, their sincerity, good intents, or the good heart, that all is well. Yet, the truth is that all such mindsets leave us dry, empty, without the source of life which comes only from the rock, Jesus. Now, if verse 1 illustrates our condition of sin apart from faith in Christ, then verses 5 and 6 illustrate the solution.
Quote, And the Lord said unto Moses, Go on before the people, and take with thee of the elders of Israel, and thy rod wherewith thou smotest the river, take in thy hand, and go. Behold, I will stand before thee there upon the rock in Horeb, and thou shalt smite the rock, and there shall come water out of it, that the people may drink." As we begin our study of the solution, turn to Paul's letter to the Corinthians, where in chapter 10, Paul begins to reveal to the Corinthians the various substances of the type presented in Exodus. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, we read Paul's commentary on which comes from the rock at Horeb. Quote, And did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Unquote. Here, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, reveals that the rock in Horeb is the type of none other than the rock who is Christ Jesus. Just in case this identification seems dubious, take another more discerning look at Exodus chapter 17, verse 6, which says, quote, Behold, I will stand before thee there upon the rock in Horeb, and thou shalt smite the rock, unquote. From within the original text, there can be no doubt as to the final identification of the rock and of our substance. First of all, the Hebrew word translated, quote-unquote, stand, can be translated, quote, to stand, take a stand, present oneself, be, or become servant of, unquote. The word, quote-unquote, before, can be translated, quote, before, face, presence, or countenance, unquote. The word rock can be used of a material rock, and also as a proper noun with reference to a deity, as in this case, quote-unquote, the rock, Jesus. Just so there is no confusion, this rock is in Horeb. Horeb is another name for Mount Sinai, where Moses first met God in the burning bush, and where Moses later receives the tablets of the law. Thus we see that upon examining the totality of these things, it would not be inconsistent to paraphrase Exodus chapter 17, verse 6, along these lines. Quote, Behold, my presence will be upon the rock at Horeb, and thou shalt smite the rock. Unquote. Now the next question is, what is the significance of Moses smiting the rock? Well, to begin with, the Hebrew word translated, quote-unquote, smite, can equally be translated as, quote, strike, smite, hit, beat, slay, or kill, unquote. This presents an interesting analogy when we look at Isaiah chapter 53, verses 2 through 5, which gives the prophecy of the substance later fulfilled by Jesus during his crucifixion. Quote, he is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, 
smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed." What we learn from this is that in order to be reconciled from sin and have fellowship with God, it was necessary that someone who had no sin and who was perfectly righteous in every respect in God's eyes would be punished for our sins and transgressions. Isaiah points distinctively to Jesus who was that person the only person, both God and man, who had the nature and ability to do so. Isaiah and Exodus also demonstrate the profound and enigmatic mystery of the eternal Godhead. Here, Moses, who is the type of the Deliverer, Jesus, who is the Son, the second person of the Godhead, holds the rod of God, which is the symbol of God's power. Moses is then commanded to smite the rock, which is also the type of Jesus, with that rod. This type dramatizes the delicate balances between three facts. One, Jesus volunteered to take on the form of a man, humbled himself, and became a servant, even unto death, the death of the cross. Two, Jesus followed the perfect will of the Father. Three, Jesus had the power to lay down his own life and to take it up again. Ultimately, God's directive to have Moses strike the rock is in fact a prophetical and typological picture showing how according to God, that in order for Israel, i.e. God's people, to move from resting where they are dry, thirsty, and unfulfilled, it will be necessary for God, who is standing on the rock, to smite that rock, i.e. Jesus, on our behalf, so that as a result, God's people may be given life through the sustaining water which flows from that rock. This is in fact the promise from God that having struck the rock with the rod, God promised that, quote, there shall come water out of it, that the people may drink, unquote. It is interesting to note that when God directed Moses to perform this task, he specifically refers to the rod, saying, quote, Thy rod wherewith thou smotest the river, unquote. Now Moses had used the rod to perform several miracles, and there was only one rod which could be in question. So why did God choose to make reference to the rod in connection to the smiting of the river in Egypt? Well, by reminder, during the first plague of Egypt, Moses smote the river with the rod and the river became blood. May I suggest that this reference is an allusion to none other than the truth of propitiatory law. As Hebrews chapter 9 verse 22 states, Quote, and almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without the shedding of blood is no remission. Unquote. Thus, by analogy, the water of Egypt is the type of those earthly resources 
whose origins are of the flesh and of this world, and which inevitably leave us paradoxically empty, thirsting every day, not unlike Israel who encamps and rests at Rephidim. Conversely, when we apply the power of God via the gift of Jesus' sacrifice by faith, even the most polluted waters are transformed through the propitiation of his blood. This constitutes justification on our part. In addition, having been cleansed by his blood, which flows from Jesus, our rock, that rock, Jesus, gives us the gift of his implanted spirit, which flows like water to feed, refresh, refine, and give us life more abundantly. In looking at verses which could refer to justification and sanctification in this matter, John chapter 19 verse 34 says, quote, But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, and forthwith came out blood and water, unquote. Speaking of new life, transformation, and sanctification, John chapter 7 verse 37 says, quote, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. Unquote. Also, John chapter 4, verse 14 quote, Whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Unquote. Thus, in its fullest context, the incident at Rephidim is demonstrative in showing the contrast and dichotomy between the condition of any man who attempts to rest, placing his trust in the idleness of living and pleasing God according to his own merits, and the man who lives by virtue of the waters which flow from the smitten rock, who is Christ, by his grace through faith. In the first case, we are bound to find ourselves dry, thirsty, and ultimately without life. In the second case, no matter how much of the water of Egypt, i.e. sin, has or does flow and stagnate in our lives, Jesus' sacrifice transforms those waters through his blood and our sins are purged forever. In its place, we have the ongoing water of God's Spirit, which fills us, revives us, sustains us, and gives us new life forevermore. Lastly, the best news is that going back to Paul's revelation in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, the rock, which was, quote, that spiritual rock that followed them, unquote, this seemingly small piece of information tells us a great deal. One, in addition to the definition translated, quote, unquote, followed, the Greek word from which we get the word followed can also mean, quote, to join as an attendant or to accompany, unquote. Since there is no indication of limits which are placed on the following, joining, or attendance, 
then we may infer that the spiritual rock who Paul identifies as Christ was ever present with God's people. This would tend to agree with Matthew chapter 28, verse 20, which states, quote, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. Amen. This, by extension, means that just as the spiritual rock, which was Christ, was with God's people through all their wanderings while they were en route to the promised land, so also Jesus Christ, who is our rock, promises to be with God's people through all our wanderings while we are en route to heaven. 2. Since the spiritual rock, Christ, followed them, then by logical deduction, the incident at Rephidim need not be an event which was limited to a geographical area. In other words, since the rock followed them, they potentially had access to that rock at any time before, during, or after. So, in effect, the issue was not unavailability on the part of the rock or of Jesus. Rather, the issue was, and is, the willingness on the part of man to recognize and repent of his situation at Rephidim, i.e. resting in the idleness of our own merits, and instead being willing to drink by faith from the rock who is Christ. The good news is that no matter how close or far we may be to Egypt, the rock, i.e. Jesus, follows us. It is he who delivers us from Egypt. It is he who bides us to drink. Here again, Jesus says in John chapter 7, verses 37 and 38, quote, In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Unquote. From this we move to Exodus chapter 19 verses 4 through 6, which says, quote, Ye have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bear you on eagles' wings, and brought you unto myself. Now therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed, and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." These are the words that thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel, unquote. Here, God gives reminder to Israel, and by extension, all God's people who have been delivered from Egypt, of God's unfailing love, provision, and care. The reference to eagle's wings is reminiscent of Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 9 through 11, which say, quote, For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the lot of his inheritance. He found him in a desert land and in the waste howling wilderness. He led him about. He instructed him. He kept him as the apple of his eye, 
as an eagle stirreth up her nest, fluttereth over her young, spreadeth abroad her wings, and taketh them, beareth them upon her wings. Unquote. Also, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31, which says, quote, But they which wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. Unquote. Returning to verses 4 through 6, God gives a conditional promise. God promises that his people will be a peculiar treasure, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation to him. Now, either God is simply waxing poetically, or he is making a promise which holds some tangible merit. If God is being realistic, then we need to explore what conditions need be met to obtain these promises. The promise itself states, he will fulfill his promise, quote-unquote, if we will obey his voice and keep his covenant. The next question is, how or by what means can or do we obey his voice and keep his covenant? Well, if we look globally at the context of God's word, we once again are reminded that according to Romans chapter 3 and other scriptures that, quote, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none that doeth good, no, not one, unquote. So in terms of our own abilities, merits, goodness, and righteousness, we have neither obeyed his voice nor kept his covenant. We have all failed. Contrasting this, the good news is that if, by God's grace, we acknowledge, accept, and repent of our own pride, rebellion, and unrighteousness, and we instead place our complete faith and trust in the imputed righteousness finished on the cross by Jesus, then we are covered completely by Jesus, who on our behalf perfectly obeyed the voice of the Father and kept his covenant. Thus, by an abiding relationship in and through Jesus, we fulfill the conditions put forth by God to his people, and we likewise have access to the promise of being a peculiar treasure, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation to him. Exodus chapter 19 verses 9 through 13 reads, quote, And the Lord said unto Moses, Lo, I come unto thee in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with thee, and believe thee forever. And Moses told the words of the people unto the Lord, and the Lord said unto Moses, Go unto the people, and sanctify them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes. And be ready against the third day, for the third day the Lord will come down in the sight of all the people upon Mount Sinai. And thou shalt set bounds unto the people round about, saying, Take heed to yourselves that ye go not up into the mount, or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mount shall surely be put to death. There shall not a hand touch it, 
but he shall surely be stoned or shot through, whether it be beast or man, it shall not live. When the trumpet soundeth long, they shall come up to the mount." Unquote. Notice that in verse 9 onward, God makes it clear that he wants to commune with his chosen people. That being said, because God is holy, perfect, and righteous, the way is not yet possible due to sin. Instead, due to man's separation as a result of sin, God must come via thick cloud. The perfect way is obscured for the time being. While God's people cannot directly see God, they will hear his voice, his word, which is the type of Jesus who will later be the word made flesh. As if the clue wasn't clear enough, God instructs his people to purify themselves by washing their clothes. This is the type of conviction and repentance. Finally, God's people are told to be ready for the third day at which time they will now see the Lord. Here again, the type of waiting three days illustrates the substance of Jesus' death and burial, three days after which he is raised by his own power. Those who do repent, place their faith in Jesus and his resurrection will see him just as the Israelites saw God on the mount. Outside of this relationship with Christ through grace, by faith, access to God's presence is barred by this barrier of sin. Those who attempt to approach via the vanity and arrogance of their own righteousness are dead, just as surely as those who would approach the mount. Finally, the entire congregation will be called to the mountain when the trumpet sounds to summon them. In this case, may I suggest that the trumpet in view here is the type of the final trumpet corresponding to the rapture of the church. When this happens, God's people, his outcalled ones, the church, are caught up in a moment, changed in the twinkling of an eye. All sin is put away, and we are clothed perfectly in robes, washed white, sanctified by Jesus' blood. We, like Israel, come up to the mount, which is the type of God's dwelling place, heaven. This concludes this episode. Please join me again for part 10. Now, if you have any questions about God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I encourage you to send me an email at pastor underscore Yeshua at yahoo.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R underscore Y-E-S-H-U-A at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. Trust